0: Welcome to Talking Tax, a Bloomberg Tax Podcast. In this series, we talk to attorneys, accountants, and other tax professionals about the latest developments in the world of tax. I'm your host, Andrea Ben Yosef, and we're excited that you're here with us today. Welcome to Talking Tax. I'm here with George Karabjanian and Richard Franklin from the law firm of Franklin, Karabjanian and Law PLLC with offices in Florida and Washington DC. We're here today to talk about part one in the podcast about alimony and prenups and alimony trusts after the 2017 tax act. This part one will be about alimony and prenups.
1: Thank you, uh, Andrew. Um, The current law is that alimony is includable in the income of a recipient spouse and it's deductible by the pay or spouse. That's section 71 and 215. That has been the law for upwards of 75 years. They eliminated effective 1119, 2019, sections 71 and 215, as well as section 682, but that's for another, top, another discussion. The explanation given by the Joint Committee was that we were following the principles established in Gould v. Gould. That's it, one sentence. Makes zero sense. They ignore 75 years of practice, they ignored the Mahana case, they ignored the fact that the principles from Gould did not determine whether constitutionally constitutionally, alimony is taxable. It just said that pursuant to that specific statute that was in effect at that time, it wasn't included after December 31 2018 alimony will no longer be taxable under the tax reform act of 2017 a little known provision buried deep within the act repeals section 71 and 215 and section 682 which is a topic for another discussion but basically that means that alimony after december 31 for divorces occurring after december 31 2018 alimony will no longer be taxable to the recipient were deductible by the payer.
0: So, Richard, let me turn to you. Why do you think this happened?
2: It's plain and simple. It was a tax revenue-raising provision that they needed revenue, and so this was a source for that. It's, you know, in my mind, this is the most sinister provision in the tax, uh, the tax act that George mentioned. Uh, the Joint Committee of Taxation estimated that the elimination of this tax break, they call it a tax break would increase federal revenue by $7 billion over the course of the next 10 years. So that's really the, the idea of it. You know, currently, it's usually the wealthier spouse that's paying alimony to a less wealthy uh, spouse. And having the alimony taxed, you know, on the less wealthy spouse's return is going to be at a lower bracket. If the wealthier spouse, the payor spouse, has to pay the tax on the alimony, it's going to be at a higher bracket. So it's a revenue-raising provision, and, you know, particularly in, in many situations for divorcing spouses, it's going to be, a, you know, a real, a challenge, and there's, um, you know, going to be a, a new line of thinking that's going to have to develop because there's been 75 years of it being this particular way. And that's the divorce lawyers, you know, the actual uh, clients getting divorced, the judges, The people that financial planners that work with people to try to come up with these numbers, it's a big change in this world.
0: So let me, let's start before the marriage. How did this affect prenuptial agreements? Well, uh,
2: prenuptial agreements, you know, in my experience, many times didn't call for alimony per se. You know, and and it was probably a, a relatively rare situation where a prenup was done that required periodic payments. That would be includable in the payee spouse's income, but there would certainly be some of those out there, and now those those agreements need to be reviewed, because after the end of this year, um, in a, in the case of a divorce, if the agreement said, pay you know the, the 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 payor spouse will no longer get a deduction for those payments, notwithstanding what the prenup says, uh, be, there won't be grandfathering for a prenup where the divorce occurs after the end of this year.
0: What about if it's a separation agreement, George?
1: So let me backtrack one second. Alimony is an opt-out provision. So into the definition of section 71 and 215, if the agreement, if an agreement provides that it would not be included in income, it wasn't. So many prenups, this would be a negotiated point, whether you're going to allow, if you're making periodic payments, whether that would be subject to tax problem is, Richard talked about grandfathering, now there's a grandfather rule that says for existing divorces, divorce decrees that have been in effect prior to January 1, 2018, the repeal doesn't apply. So if you've been divorced and alimony is being included and deducted, that will continue. However, what about a prenuptial agreement? This is something that could be a negotiated point. The exclusion is for a divorce decree or separation instrument. What is a prenuptial agreement? A prenuptial agreement is something more than a contract to affect future rights. So a prenuptial agreement, and we've spoken to a couple of family law lawyers, and everybody's pretty much in agreement. That's not covered under what is defined in the code as something that would be grandfathered. So if they've provided for a a prenuptial agreement for the taxability, that provision will have no bearing if they get divorced after December 31 2018
0: so how would that work if your prenuptial agreement terms don't aren't in effect anymore did i say that right
2: well i think that's something they're going to have to the couple's probably going to have to negotiate as a part of getting divorced or they could go back now in contemplation that you know after the end of this year the provision in the the current agreement isn't gonna be enforceable, or you know, it's not gonna have tax effect. So they could go back and modify the agreement. But of course, doing the original agreement usually is fraught with difficulties, so having a couple go back and reopen negotiations over this change in the tax law is gonna be a, you know, a very tenuous you know, kind of
0: uh, element. Yes, I don't think people will enjoy that too much. Let me
2: go back a moment about the reasons about Congress you know, making this change. It, it is, in effect, another marriage penalty. We're all familiar with this idea of uh, marriage tax penalty, right? They're, if you have two, uh, two single people and they're both earning 300,000 a year, they go up the marginal brackets mm-hmm. the same, and they both now will get a $10,000 deduction, You know, availability of this $10,000 deduction for state and local taxes. If they get married, they're going to go up the bracket faster than two singles, and they only get one $10,000 deduction. Now with this change in the alimony rule, it's another marriage penalty, but it actually is imposed after the divorce. So uh, it's an interesting provision.
0: So what do these rules do to alimony exactly?
2: Well, in, in effect, it, it's repealed the provision. There was a provision that said the earning spouse, in effect, gets a deduction and that deduction has now been repealed. So there's no deduction for the payments to the the divorced spouse anymore. And there's not a provision in the code now that says the, the payee spouse has to include that amount in income. So it's just income for the the spouse who's paying.
1: And keep in mind, this is not necessarily a provision penalizing only the ultra high net worth people. This is for someone who's able to itemize deductions. In fact, I think even this is an above-the-line deduction, is it not? Correct. Section 215. The theory is while, in, while they are married, a couple is one unit. The tax code is fraught with provisions that assume that, uh, the ability to gift split, the ability to file a return jointly. So it's one unit. So if income is earned, it's shared by the unit. With alimony, now the payor spouse Technically, never sees the benefit of that income. It's paid out to the recipient spouse. The provision of Section 215 and 71 were designed to sort of equalize the playing field. The payor spouse never sees the benefit of those funds, so why should they bear the burden? He or she bear the burden of the tax. Therefore, it's deductible. The recipient spouse is receiving that income, and someone has to pay a tax. So why should and that's and they're going to make the recipient spouse pay. It. With this change, you know, Richard mentioned it's a marriage penalty. Pay Payor spouse never sees one bit of benefit from it. Not only that, has no tax break. So in effect, that is hurting that spouse's net wo- overall net worth. Right. And if that's what Congress is trying to do, then mission accomplished because that's exactly what will happen.
0: And how will, the effect, how will that affect negotiations overall? I mean, is it going to make it harder for the payee spouse to work out a good settlement.
2: I, I can't imagine that it won't be more difficult to do. Uh, the payee spouse had more control, for example, where they live, you know, to reduce their income tax effect. They could live in Maryland or they could live in Florida frequently. They had the choice. The payor spouse doesn't necessarily have that choice. So you, you might have, for example, someone who's the payor spouse be a Florida resident now, and they work out an agreement where, where in effect, when it, under the current rules, there was some tax savings because in effect, the payee spouse was in a lower bracket. So they were, if they were smart, the, the people, the the couple was essentially using that lower income tax effect in their negotiations to determine how much was paid. Um, now that disappears, so there's less money on the table to divide in in essence. And suppose they do do work out an agreement um, under this new regime and the payor spouse moves from a a state like Florida with no income tax to New York. He gets transferred from his job in Florida to New York or California where the tax is over 10 percent additional. So they're, they're likely to have to go back to court again you know, to focus on this issue, the effect of it.
0: So just to jump in, that's because this affects state taxes as well as federal taxes, correct? Exactly. Yeah,
2: exactly. Because all the states or pretty much all the states define income based on federal income. So you have to take both into account.
1: Exactly.
0: And one other thing. So this is one of the few provisions of the Tax Act that is not going to sunset. Is that correct?
1: Yes. And that is a further (laughs) hindrance. Because, because it's a
2: revenue raiser and it's the sunset provisions applied to the, the revenue
1: deficit items. And one of the things we, why we focused on this issue, you would read a lot of articles about the tax act. What's happening, oh, corporate rates are cut. The transfer tax exemption is doubled pretty much. You didn't read too much about the alimony provision. It was sort of buried deep within the act that, oh, and why would they do it? The tax act that sold, oh, tax cuts across the board. Well, someone has to pay for the tax cuts. You can't, with a deficit running, you can't just say we're going to cut back on our receipts. This is a hidden revenue raiser.
2: And as I said before, it's a sinister provision. And that's why I believe they had to delay the effective date a year just to see what feedback they would get and whether they could actually keep it in place.
0: Which it looks like they are. As far as we know. And
1: another thing I should add, and this just goes back to tax policy. Considering the lightning speed in which this act was put together, the fact that these provisions are in there, this, this is not something that was just thrown out at the last minute. I have to believe that this had been mulling around the policymakers for years, much like go back eight years portability while portability was thrown in sort of in the 2010 act, portability had been around for six years through various congressional bills. I haven't done the research to see in the past if this had been up there, but it just seems that could not have been haphazardly thrown in, So, oh, let's just put this in. Someone thought about this, someone considered this as a way to offset cuts.
0: So now that it's here, what would you recommend that practitioners tell their clients to do or not to do in this next year?
2: Well, there's a great impetus now for anyone who's currently in the process of getting divorced to achieve that by the end of the year, at least in the sense of having a settlement agreement that can qualify under the grandfathering rules.
1: Not only that, it may be that a divorce decree doesn't specifically say that. Alimony shall be subject to section 71 and 215. The grandfathering provision seems to say that it must so provide. Maybe the maybe they've been just treating it this way. Probably want to get, if they can, that decree revised to specifically say because you want to be able to fit within the grandfathering. The downside to all of this is you were hitting on it before. Richard talked about in a prenuptial agreement and in a divorce decree, these, for the most part, aren't among friendly parties who are going to willingly say, hey, let's do this, this is great, let's go to lunch afterward." It's not going to happen. These are contentious. What is it they, they've said? I've read criminal courts, the worst people look like the best people, and in divorce court, the best people look like the worst people. Human nature. So this is, it's gonna be very difficult to try to get anything modified.
0: Thank you to George and Richard for this very illuminating podcast, and we hope you tune in to our next one, which is going to be about alimony, trust, slats, and lifetime Q-tips, which is also being done by then. Thank you for joining us today on Talking Tax. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bloomberg Tax and subscribe to our show on iTunes and SoundCloud. Tune in next time for more analysis on the newest tax issues. From the nation's capital, I'm Andrea Benyosef.